Section six of Bush Studies by Barbara Bainton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Chosen Vessel She laid the stick and her baby on the grass while she untied the rope that tethered the calf. The length of the rope separated them. The cow was near the calf, and both were lying down. Feed along the creek was plentiful, and every day she found a fresh place to tether it, since tether it she must for if she did not, it would stray with the cow out on the plain. She had plenty of time to go after it, but then there was Baby, and if the cow turned on her, out on the plain, and she with Baby, she had been a town girl and was afraid of the cow, but she did not want the cow to know it. She used to run at first when it bellowed its protest against the penning up of its calf. This satisfied the cow, also the calf, but the woman's husband was angry and called her, the noun was Kerr. It was he who forced her to run and meet the advancing cow, brandishing a stick, and uttering threatening words, till the enemy turned and ran. "'That's the way,' the man said, laughing at her white face. In many things he was worse than the cow, and she wondered if the same rule would apply to the man, but she was not one to provoke skirmishes, even with the cow. It was early for the calf to go to bed, nearly an hour earlier than usual, but she had felt so restless all day, partly because it was Monday, and the end of the week that would bring her and her baby, the companionship of its father, was so far off. He was a shearer, and had gone to his shed before daylight that morning. Fifteen miles as the crow flies separated them. There was a track in front of the house, for it had once been a wine shanty, and a few travellers passed along at intervals. She was not afraid of horsemen, but swagmen, going to, or worse, coming from the dismal, drunken little township a day's journey beyond, terrified her. One had called at the house today and asked for Tucker. Ah, that was why she had penned up the calf so early. She feared more from the look of his eyes and the gleam of his teeth as he watched her newly awakened baby beat its impatient fists upon her covered breasts than from the knife that was sheathed in the belt at his waist. She had given him bread and meat. Her husband, she told him, was sick. She always said that when she was alone and a swagman came, and she had gone in from the kitchen to the bedroom and asked questions and replied to them in the best man's voice she could assume. Then he had asked to go into the kitchen to boil his billy, but she gave him tea and he drank it on the wood heap. He had walked round and round the house, and there were cracks in some places, and after the last time he had asked for tobacco. She had none to give him, and he had grinned, because there was a broken clay pipe near the wood heap where he stood, and if there were a man inside, there ought to have been tobacco. Then he asked for money, but women in the bush never have money. At last he had gone, and she, watching through the cracks, saw him, when about a quarter of a mile away, turn and looked back at the house. He had stood so for some moments, with a pretense of fixing his swag, and then, apparently satisfied, moved to the left towards the creek. The creek made a bow around the house, and when he came to it she lost sight of him. Hours after, watching intently for signs of smoke, she saw the man's dog chasing some sheep that had gone to the creek for water, and saw it slink back suddenly, as if the man had called it. More than once she thought of taking her baby and going to her husband. 
but in the past, when she had dared to speak of the dangers to which her loneliness exposed her, he had taunted and sneered at her. She need not flatter herself, he had coarsely told her, that anybody would want to run away with her. Long before nightfall, she placed food on the kitchen table, and beside it laid the big brooch that had been her mother's. It was the only thing of value that she had, and she left the kitchen door wide open. The doors inside she securely fastened. Beside the bolt in the back one she drove in the steel and scissors. Against it she piled the table and the stools. Underneath the lock of the front door she forced the handle of the spade, and the blade between the cracks in the flooring boards. Then the prop stick, cut into lengths, held the top as the spade held the middle. The windows were little more than portholes. She had nothing to fear through them. She ate a few mouthfuls of food and drank a cup of milk, but she lighted no fire, and when night came, no candle, but crept with her baby to bed. What woke her? The wonder was that she had slept. She had not meant to, but she was young, very young. Perhaps the shrinking of the galvanised roof, yet hardly, since that was so usual. Something had set her heart beating wildly, but she lay quite still, only she put her arm over her baby. Then she had both round it, and she prayed, Little baby, little baby, don't wake. The moon's rays shone on the front of the house, and she saw one of the open cracks, quite close to where she lay, darkened with a shadow. Then a protesting growl reached her, and she could fancy she heard the man turning hastily, she plainly heard the thud of something striking the dog's ribs and the long flying strides of the animal as it howled and ran. Still watching, she saw the shadow darken every crack along the wall. She knew by the sounds that the man was trying every standpoint that might help him to see in. But how much he saw she could not tell. She thought of many things she might do to deceive him into the idea that she was not alone, but the sound of her voice would wake baby and she dreaded that, as though it were the only danger that threatened her. So she prayed, "'Little baby, don't wake, don't cry.' Stealthily the man crept about. She knew he had his boots off, because of the vibration that his feet caused as he walked along the veranda to gauge the width of the little window in her room, and the resistance of the front door. Then he went to the other end, and the uncertainty of what he was doing became unendurable. She had felt safer, far safer, while he was close, and she could watch and listen. She felt she must watch, but the great fear of wakening baby again assailed her. She suddenly recalled that one of the slabs on that side of the house had shrunk in length as well as in width, and had once fallen out. It was held in position only by a wedge of wood underneath. What if he should discover that? The uncertainty increased her terror. She prayed as she gently raised herself with her little one in her arms, held tightly to her breast. She thought of the knife, and shielded her child's body with her hands and arms. Even its little feet she covered with its white gown, and baby never murmured. It liked to be held so. Noiselessly, she crossed to the other side, and stood where she could see and hear, but not be seen. He was trying every slab, and was very near to that, with the wedge under it. Then she saw him find it. 
and heard the sound of the knife as bit by bit he began to cut away the wooden support. She waited motionless with her baby pressed tightly to her, though she knew that in another few minutes this man with the cruel eyes, lascivious mouth and gleaming knife would enter. One side of the slab tilted, he had only to cut away the remaining little end, when the slab, unless he held it, would fall outside. She heard his jerked breathing as it kept time with the cuts of the knife, and the brush of his clothes as he rubbed the wall in his movements, for she was so still and quiet that she did not even tremble. She knew when he ceased, and wondered why. She stood well concealed. She knew he could not see her, and that he would not fear if he did. Yet she heard him move cautiously away. Perhaps he expected the slab to fall. Still, his motive puzzled her, and she moved even closer, and bent her body the better to listen. Ah! What sound was that? Listen! Listen! She bade her heart, her heart that had kept so still, but now bounded with tumultuous throbs that dulled her ears. Nearer and nearer came the sounds, till the welcome thud of a horse's hoof rang out clearly. Oh God! Oh God! Oh God! she cried, for they were very close before she could make sure. She turned to the door, and with her baby in her arms, tore frantically at its bolts and bars. Out she darted at last, and running madly along, saw the horseman beyond her in the distance. She called to him in Christ's name, in her babe's name, still flying like the wind with the speed that deadly peril gives. But the distance grew greater and greater between them, and when she reached the creek, her prayers turned to wild shrieks, for there crouched the man she feared, with outstretched arms that caught her as she fell. She knew he was offering terms if she ceased to struggle and cry for help, though louder and louder did she cry for it, but it was only when the man's hand gripped her throat that the cry of murder came from her lips, and when she ceased the startled curlews took up the awful sound and flew shrieking over the horseman's head. By God! said the boundary rider. It's been a dingo right enough. Eight killed up here, and there's more down in the creek. A ewe and a lamb, I'll bet. And the lamb's alive. And he shut out the sky with his hand, and watched the crows that were circling round and round, nearing the earth one moment, and the next shooting skywards. By that he knew the lamb must be alive. Even a dingo will spare a lamb sometimes. Yes, the lamb was alive, and after the manner of lambs of its kind, did not know its mother when the light came. It had sucked the still warm breasts, and laid its little head on her bosom, and slept till the morn. Then, when it looked at the swollen, disfigured face, it wept, and would have crept away, but for the hand that still clutched its little gown. Sleep was nodding its golden head, and swaying its small body, and the crows were close so close to the mother's wide-open eyes, when the boundary rider galloped down. "'Jesus Christ!' he said, covering his eyes. He told afterwards how the little child held out its arms to him, and how he was forced to cut its gown that the dead hand held. It was election time, and as usual the priest had selected a candidate. 
His choice was so obviously in the interests of the squatter that Peter Hennessy's reason, for once in his life, had overridden superstition, and he had dared promise his vote to another. Yet he was uneasy, and every time he woke in the night, and it was often, he heard the murmur of his mother's voice. It came through the partition, or under the door. If through the partition, he knew she was praying in her bed, but when the sounds came under the door, she was on her knees before the little altar in the corner that enshrined the statue of the Blessed Virgin and Child. "'Mary, Mother of Christ, save my son, save him,' prayed she in the dairy as she strained and set the evenings milking. "'Sweet Mary, for the love of Christ, save him.' The grief in her old face made the morning meal so bitter that to avoid her he came late to his dinner. It made him so cowardly that he could not say good-bye to her, and when night fell on the eve of the election day, he rode off secretly. He had thirty miles to ride to the township to record his vote. He cantered briskly along the great stretch of plain that had nothing but stunted cotton-bush to play shadow to the full moon, which glorified a sky of earliest spring. The bruised incense of the flowering clover rose up to him, and the glory of the night appealed vaguely to his imagination, but he was preoccupied with his present act of revolt. Vividly he saw his mother's agony when she would find him gone. At that moment he felt sure she was praying. "'Mary, Mother of Christ,' he repeated the invocation, half unconsciously, and suddenly, out of the stillness, came Christ's name to him, called loudly in despairing accents. "'For Christ's sake! Christ's sake! Christ's sake!' called the voice. Good Catholic that he had been, he crossed himself before he dared to look back. Gliding across a ghostly patch of pipe clay, he saw a white-robed figure with a babe clasped to her bosom. All the superstitious awe of his race and religion swayed his brain. The moonlight on the gleaming clay was a heavenly light to him, and he knew the white figure not for flesh and blood, but for the virgin and child of his mother's prayers. Then, good Catholic that once more he was, he put spurs to his horse's sides and galloped madly away. His mother's prayers were answered. Hennessy was the first to record his vote, for the priest's candidate. Then he sought the priest at home, but found that he was out rallying the voters. Still, under the influence of his blessed vision, Hennessy would not go near the public houses, but wandered about the outskirts of the town for hours, keeping apart from the townspeople, and fasting as penance. He was subdued and mildly ecstatic, feeling as a repentant chastened child who awaits only the kiss of peace. And at last, as he stood in the graveyard, crossing himself with reverent awe, he heard in the gathering twilight the roar of many voices crying the name of the victor at the election. It was well with the priest. Again, Hennessy sought him. He sat at home, the housekeeper said, and led him into the dimly lighted study. His seat was immediately opposite a large picture, and as the housekeeper turned up the lamp, once more the face of the Madonna and child looked down on him, but this time, silently, peacefully. The half-parted lips of the Virgin were smiling with compassionate tenderness. Her eyes seemed to beam with the forgiveness of an earthly mother for her erring but beloved child. He fell on his knees in adoration. 
transfixed the wondering priest stood for mingled with the adoration my lord and my god was the exultation and hast thou chosen me what is it peter asked the priest father he answered reverently and with loosened tongue he poured forth the story of his vision great god shouted the priest and you did not stop to save her have you not heard many miles further down the creek a man kept throwing an old cap into a water-hole the dog would bring it out and lay it on the opposite side to where the man stood but would not allow the man to catch him though it was only to wash the blood of the sheep from his mouth and throat for the sight of blood made the man tremble End of section six recording by kirsty end of bush studies by barbara bainton